Paraguay are surely through to the knockout stage now. They lead Nigeria by three goals to one. Cuevas ensured his rapid elevation to hero status with one of the best goals seen at the finals. And Spain will now play Paraguay in the quarterfinals after Paraguay beat Japan in a penalty shootout. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of our latest series on World Football Index where we look at some of the most important, influential and interesting stories in world football. Last time out we were in North Africa taking a look at Algeria in 1982. This time we are flying back to South America to look at how Paraguay managed to qualify for four successive World Cups between 1998 and 2010. A tale that has a number of interesting stories around it. With me today to talk about this is Tim Vickery, but first I'll introduce our Paraguayan football expert, Roberto Rojas, somebody you may have heard on World Football Index before. How are you doing, Roberto? Very well, Adam, and also very well to share the stage with someone that I also uh, have enjoyed speaking to and Tim, and really excited about talking something that I'm always passionate about and obviously close to my heart, as many people perhaps have figured out either on Twitter or on podcast or anywhere else, uh, how this kind of golden generation of Paraguay made it to four straight World Cups and and kind of the storylines that come about it, because I think um, it is an interesting topic when it comes to a team like that to make it to consecutive World Cups. You know, we're always used to teams like Brazil and Argentina and Uruguay. But, you know, Paraguay, um, at least in the, in the modern era, definitely deserve um, some sort of, of talk about it. So I'm really excited to, to be a part of it. And as I mentioned, we're also joined again by Tim. Welcome back, Tim. How are you doing? Yeah, very well. Very well. Lovely, lovely to be here talking about, um, well, the mouse that roared and kept on roaring. You know, and Rob talked about a generation but if you can do that over four World Cups, you know, that, that's getting into two and even even three generations. And, and just to put this into some kind of context, I hope Rob isn't, isn't going to be insulted by uh, by my view of the land of his father's birth. Um, you know, but Paraguay is a, is a, by South American standards, a poor country, even by South American standards, an, an impoverished country. Um, every time I've been there, I've felt a little bit trapped in an endless Sunday. Uh, and, uh, you know, this this country... Um, with all of its dysfunctionalities, and there, 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 there are plenty, it does have a kind of collective sense that football seems to bring out. They've really easily beaten the Paraguayans. And that, that's part of the backbone to this story, because in four consecutive World Cups, only once in a group game were they beaten by more than one goal. Uh, and the, all of the stories end with one-nil defeats. Uh, so uh, that, that, that that's a, a remarkable tale of, of, of resilience when you look against the, the countries that they're going up against. You know, they're going up against uh, world champions and, and World Cup finalists uh, and uh, never going down easily to any of them and giving some of them a real fright. And one of the things I'm most interested in over the course of, uh, of, of our little discussion from, from Rob is... Which moments along the way could have been even better? Where is there one of those four World Cups where, you know, Paraguay perhaps could have gone on to be real contenders? Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to sit back, listen to Rob, chip in when I can and uh, unfurl the story of the mouse that roared and roared and roared. Sh- shall we start in 1998? Um because I think for most of our listeners, that is perhaps the point 
a lot of people will remember some of the key characters from this Paraguay story. And I know as a, how old was I in 98? A 14 year old watching the, watching the France 98 World Cup. Um, the goalkeeper, Jose Luis Chivalet, he, he was the man who really sort of captured the attention of the world in that, in, in that World Cup from, you know, from that Paraguay team. Um, for first, the, him taking free kicks, which I, which I think was the first time many people, um, certainly certainly in the United Kingdom, would have seen. Uh, first time they would have seen something like that. And also for his heroic displays um, during that World Cup. Um, he kept a couple of clean sheets and, and he almost took France um, in that last 16 game to a penalty shootout, didn't he? Yeah, definitely. I'll go in here first. Um, when you go in back to the career that Jose Luis Chilavert had, you know, he was someone that um, started off very young at, at Sportivo Luqueño um, and then heading off to, to Guarani, a, a team that actually had beat, become the first champion of Paraguay uh, f- and broke a, a, a spell of almost six years of Olympia, who at the time were also champions of the Copa Libertadores for the first time. And uh, we're world champions as well, winning the Intercontinental Cup. So then goes along Chilaver to San Lorenzo, where you know he, he gets to learn about uh, taking free kicks, becomes more of a, of a specialist. Um, the great uh, Toto Lorenzo, uh, Juan Carlos Lorenzo, also taught him how to do that. He said that in an interview. He then goes off to Spain, where you know he didn't have the most success, but you know he was obviously as charismatic and you know was very showcased about that. But then, of course, the the big time that he he essentially rose into into superstardom at least for for the goalkeeper sense was when he went at Vélez when he was at Vélez Sarsfield under Carlos Bianchi and you know he, over there he transformed himself into one of the best goalkeepers in, in in Argentina and then all the way into South America when they were when Vélez was winning all those titles uh the Libertadores the league titles and many things and many other titles as well as well and that's where he was able to to show himself and, and become that kind of, of, of character that he was. He was someone that obviously had a lot to say. He was, he's, to this day, he's still controversial. And I think he, he's proud of that because, as you say, you know, uh, a little backstory as well, because, you know, the majority of immigrants in Argentina are basically Paraguayans. And so, in a way, there, it could be racism. It could be something against what they have. But Chile was just someone that, you know, who wanted to raise the flag for Paraguay where, you know, okay, this was a team that didn't make the two World Cups in a row ever since 86. So, you know, heading into 98, you know, he was someone that just wanted to be on the spotlight and really wanted to show that kind of uh, eccentric personality, his temper. Obviously, he's had uh, the, the talent as well, being able to score from free kicks and from penalties. And he demonstrated that. And and rightly so, why he was dis- he was distinguished as one of the best players one of the best goalkeepers in the world. And, you know, he was awarded three times. And for someone from South America in, in kind of that era of many goalkeepers that came out in the 90s, this shows that this he was someone that was very, very special. And and I think he demonstrated that when he headed off to France in 98 and, and take that team as the captain and, and kind of the symbol and um, introduced what he was able to show to the entire world. I kind of take the view, I'm, I'm not convinced he was the greatest goalkeeper, but he was a huge character. Uh, I remember talking to a Paraguayan club director at the time, I think this was in 1999, and he said, you know, Shilava, he's not one of us anymore. 
He's an Argentine. Now, that, what he meant by that was not that Chilever had, had, had committed treason or anything like that, but what he meant was that especially in his time with Vélez, who won world club, Argentine Libertadores world club titles, he'd taken on this larger-than-life leader persona, whereas a, a, a lot of the Paraguayans tend to be quite calm, quite serene, and football can bring out the warrior in them. But the, 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 um, not many of them have that. That uh, and he did practically become like a Buenos Aires kind of person. He even took on, he even took on Marcelo Bielsa, didn't he? At, at he did, yeah. I seem to remember a story goes. Well, and, and uh, also with the, when they played in a World Cup qualifier, and, and Pochettino punched the ball into the net, and Bielsa celebrated it. So uh, Chilaver never stops reminding him of uh, of of that fact. Uh, and so you had. I mean, the the, the team in nineteen ninety eight. And Chilavert was wonderfully well protected. Um, the coach, a Brazilian, Paulo Cesar Capejani, had organised a back three um, where and Sarabia was the youngster who was coaxed along um, by Ayala and the main man, Carlos Gamara. Gamara was a magnificent defender, an absolutely magnificent defender. And he went through that entire World Cup with much of it, uh, it's four games that Paraguay played, much of it being played in the Paraguayan half without con- without uh, conceding a single foul. That's how good he was. Um, but one of the one of the little threads that runs through this this Paraguayan side uh, in this this first cycle of the four World Cups is that Chilaver, the new uh, the new loudmouth Chilaver and Gamara really didn't get on very well. Um, so uh, there, there were there were one or two tensions there, which uh, I think is one of the things that undermined the 2002 campaign. Um, but certainly in, in 1998, that defence was such a watertight unit. The thing was, though, you just couldn't imagine where the goals were going to come from. They, 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 were, they were lacking up front. Uh, and Cardoso, Jose Cardoso, Jose Saturnino Cardoso, did develop in the, in, 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 the, in the years afterwards. It was a late developer into a very good centre forward in Mexico. But uh, they, they were light. Well, you just couldn't see against top opposition. You couldn't see where the goals were going to come from. And in the four games of that World Cup, they only managed to score in one of those games against a Nigeria side who were already kind of booked their place in the, uh, in, in, in the last round. So that, that was clearly where the problem was. And I remember speaking to Gamada not long afterwards. He was playing in uh, in, in Brazil, uh, and uh, he'd heard he'd heard that there was something coming through, and that something was Roque Santa Cruz, who the following year, 1999, Paraguay hosted the Copa America for the first time ever. I was there for it. It was a huge occasion, and Santa Cruz, at the age of 17, was leading the line. High pressure occasion, and he is the centre forward. And you think then, and Bayern Munich bought him. You went just after that Copa America, that Paraguay had ha- um, had a centre forward there who was on his way to be one of the three best players in the world. He had everything. And part of the tragedy of Paraguay over the next World Cups is the fitness of Rocky Santa Cruz because he played, but uh, you know, coaxing that body. Um, through to end of season tournaments proved proved difficult, and I just wonder what they might have achieved had Santa Cruz been able to stay fit. I think um, going back to what Tim had to say, I think this was a, a good demonstration, and and kind of still resorts to a problem that you know Paraguay have in in 2020 uh, mm. of, of being able to find that productive goal score. You know, you look at the likes of you know what you see in Argentina or in Colombia or Uruguay or even Brazil. You know, they they always have those kind of reliant players 
who are you know able to score. But for Paraguay, it was never the case. They were always a team that kind of went uh, in in a different way. You know, you know, with with most South American teams that are known for being skillful and stylish. You know, Paraguay were very different. You know, kind of going back that they were able to bring the warrior in them. You know, just be very conservative, very defensive. You know, uh, and just go on the counter. And and that was kind of what helped them. In that in that campaign, I mean, you know, even the game against France, I was actually watching it a little bit before uh, we came on. It's like it, it's a real demonstration of how well that 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 defense was so uh, important, and, and obviously with the likes of Gamara and Chilaver being the, the the key factors in that defense, and even with Gamara as well playing in that game against France with. Um, with a, a dislocated shoulder, he played the, a lot of those minutes, the last few minutes, with a dislocated shoulder, all the way up to the golden goal by Laurent Blanc. So yeah, it demonstrates the warrior and that never say die attitude that helped them um, heading into uh, the the future World Cups. And and also, you know, for Roque Santa Cruz, I think um, he was always demonstrated of his talent, very young, and and, and being able to do so. At an Olympia side that you know was co- well coached by uh, Luis Cuvilla, who helped Olympia win those first two Libertadores titles. You know he was someone that kind of demonstrated the talent, and you know he had it all, as as Tim said. But uh, you know, unfortunately, as time would go by, you know he just didn't fit the style. He would always get injury prone as well, and that kind of just removed some of the the best years that Santa Cruz could have had at the top level. And you know, I think, you know, he obviously demonstrates that later for the national team when he becomes the, the top goal scorer. Um, but he was always, he, he demonstrated what kind of talent he has and and, and it proved. He only scored in his, uh, in, in one World Cup game. That was his first one in uh, the first game of uh, of the 2002 World Cup. Uh, and it, it, it's almost, I mean, it, it's bizarre really that if we look over this cycle of uh, four World Cups, uh, there's only one player who scores more than once, and he scores in two different World Cups, and that's uh, the little winger Nelson Cuevas, who uh, the man who scored three three World Cup goals. A most unlikely story. He, he wasn't a particularly important player for for the team really over over long periods, but he he's the man who uh, come the World Cup, he got some of the goals. But the next cycle, the the cycle going towards 2002 fascinates me because the team were full of confidence they had a terrific coach in qualifying uh, Sergio Marcarian the uh, the Uruguayan really excellent coach um, I was there when they beat Brazil in Asuncion the first time they'd ever beaten Brazil in World Cup qualification and they got so much confidence from that and then the second time around when they played Brazil this time in Brazil that is where, to my mind, all the wheels come off. It's a very strange game. Brazil were were desperately short of points. Paraguay could afford to lose and still qualify in some comfort. Brazil really needed the win. FIFA appointed a European referee, who uh, the German, uh, and uh, one of the Brazilian players, Giovanni Elbe, played in 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 Germany and said, "Well, this this referee is a homer." We're, we're, uh, we've done well with this choice of referee. And it was a game where Paraguay were, were denied a couple of uh, strong penalty appeals. But even more than that, you know, there are a couple of Paraguayan players who had the same agents, who had Brazilian agents, uh, one of whom was, was Gamara and the other, the, the midfielder in Cecil. And they didn't turn up for the game. And uh, that, that created a huge problem in the camp. And the the, the, the Chilever-Gamara relationship collapses at that point. Uh, and uh, the team 
just towards the end of, of that World Cup qualifying process with a, uh, with, a, with a place already booked in Japan and South Korea, they collapse. And uh, so Makarian is sacked, even though they, they qualify. And as Makarian leaves, he says the problems all came from that, that game away to Brazil. Now, in comes a bizarre choice, Cesare Maldini, the Italian, who'd done a, a, a very poor job, really, with Italy in 1998. Quite what his character, what his qualifications were for this one, I don't know. And he couldn't even seem to remember the, 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 uh, the, the names of the, of the teams in Paraguay. And I have the impression that come the World Cup, that team kind of coached itself, you know, but they, uh, they were, they were, because I'm not sure how well Maldini was able to quality to, to communicate with them or, or, or how much really respect they had for him as, as a coach. It was a bizarre decision all round, but they got out of their group. They, uh, with the beat, beating Slovakia in, in, in the last round with Cuevas, the last game of the group with Cuevas scoring a couple of goals. And then it's Germany. And uh, who went on to reach the final that year, uh, and it, it, it's one of those games again, you know, similar to the to, to the France game. It, it, it's not it's not a great one for for the neutral, but Cuevas, who's just scored two in the previous game and is full of full of bounce and he's full of confidence, he's left on the bench, and he doesn't get on, and he doesn't get on, and he doesn't get on, and the Germans score in the 89th minute. And then Cuevas comes on, but it's only one minute, you know. So uh, um, they lost to a German side who I don't think were particularly special. And I think they could have beaten them. I wonder, Rob, if 2002, it, because it was, a, it was a very poor World Cup in terms of general standards. A lot of the players who played the European season were on their knees physically. I wonder if 2002 is the one that got away. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that and, and kind of relates to what I was going to say, because in that uh, spell, when Maldini came in, you know, there were also, you know, a bit, a bit of rage and, and kind of disputes from directors of, of clubs in Paraguay saying, you know, what kind of qualifications does he have? And, you know, even to the extent wanted him to leave the country because he had a, a, a visa that perhaps wasn't valid to enter Paraguay. So, yeah, it, it was kind of weird, that kind of appointment, because he had no familiarity of, of the country. He, he barely spoke Spanish. Um, and, you know, obviously that communication that he had with the players wasn't at its best. And um, obviously a, a big factor as well would be because that team, as you had mentioned, the, the whole relations with someone like Gamara and Chilavert, um, you know, there's a, there's a famous story, that game against uh, Slovenia, um, uh, that, uh, you know, there, there were, they had to win that game, but they had to win it by two goals because Spain and South Africa were in that same uh, match at the same time. Um, Slovenia score first, uh, right before the end of the first half. And, you know, Maldini literally just hashes at them saying that, oh, we have to play like, like my son, uh, Paolo, you have to play like Nesta and, and trying to make all these comparisons to, to the Italian players, which obviously is no comparison to Paraguayans. But, you know, in, in the end, Chilavert, you know, being the, the showman and the, the charismatic figure, you know, just told Maldini to, you know, can you give us a second coach? Um, we, we're going to have this all together. I'm, and basically gave the team talk in the second half. And that's where Cueva scores both goals and helps Paraguay qualify to that to that round of 16 game that, you know, all right, it wasn't the best Germany side out there. It was some it was a team that obviously had really over underperformed uh, back at the Euros. And obviously we're not shown of the right signs, but yeah, it, it kind of, I don't know if that would have been the World Cup that would have gone away. I mean, it would have been really interesting to see if Cuevas had started off, because especially since Santa Cruz was also injured in that game, 
I think left off after 20, 25 minutes. So yeah, if Cuevas had gone in, you know, how different would the um, would the the outcome come? I don't think that would be the one that got away. I think there was just so much mutant generation and, and those players that perhaps that unity wasn't able to help them succeed as more as expected uh, for that World Cup. For people who don't remember Cuevas, who I would imagine will be plenty, I first discovered him playing in the playing for the under twenties, Paraguay's under twenties in 1999, where he played at both right back and left wing. And did exactly the same thing in both positions. <laughs> that's how that's how great he was. Wherever you put him, you can put him on a right back, you can put him left wing, and he's going to charge head down with a ball at his feet. He, he could be he could be terrific to watch. Um, but uh, uh, I suppose not a player that a kind of percentage man- manager like uh, like Cesare Maldini is uh, is going to is, is going to use and, unless he really has to. But I, I do wonder if, uh, if if Cuevas, full of confidence, running at the Germans, might have uh, might have achieved something. Well, I saw I saw an interview with uh, Cuevas, and he was saying that after the Spain game where they had gone 1-0 up and lost 3-1, and that, and that was hot on the heels of losing a two-goal lead against South Africa in the first game in that 2002 World Cup. And apparently Maldini came in the dressing room after that game and saying that they all have a small mentality and um, and you Paraguayans don't exist. It's kind of hard to translate what that <laughs> phrase is originally in Spanish, but, you know, it's basically Maldini... Yeah, you're nothing. nothing. Yeah, yeah. You're basically telling the group that they were wor- worthless and mentally weak. Which how to win friends and influence people. exactly doesn't seem like the best uh, strategy when you're all grouped together, um, thousands of miles away from home in a in a tournament for weeks. No, no I just think that that World Cup was so open that uh, let, let let's say that Macarian had stayed. I just wonder if uh, if Paraguay could have. You know, could have put a little dent in that, gone gone a little bit further. And I, I can't see them. You know, we'll, we'll get to 2010 later on, and uh, it's their great one, the only time they've reached the quarterfinals. But I can't imagine them winning that one. 2002 may be. I mean, they, they obviously Brazil won it, uh, and straight afterwards, Brazil and Paraguay met in a friendly that was that was uh, set up for Brazil to uh, parade themselves, and Paraguay won that one <laughs> in Brazil. So I've always wondered. You know, maybe. You know, because if you look at the teams that get into the the, the the semis in that one, you get your your Turkeys and your South Koreas, never done anything before or since. You know, why couldn't Paraguay have, uh, have, have you know, with, with 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 better management and with a with a with a with a better atmosphere, maybe that was the one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird to say because you know what I mean that that World Cup, as you know, was a surprise because we see the likes of France getting eliminated, Argentina, you know, um, obviously we see the rise of teams like Senegal, the United States, and and it was a strange World Cup. But you know, I'm, I'm, again, I'll, I'll regress. I think that this was a World Cup that had just had so many problems. You know, also politically as well, there was also problems in the country. And, um, you know, per- perhaps the atmosphere wasn't at its best and, you know, the pressure maybe wasn't there for them. I mean, it, I mean, it, it's the thing as well. You know, this was a team that when they're going into that second World Cup, you know, they missed the World Cup uh, in 1990, 94, and they go back after eight years where, you know, it's, it's different now when after you qualify for a World Cup, you know, it's the case of, you know, trying to, you know, to be happy to be there or to build on for other future players and other future World Cups to go there and, and 
be one up and and better it. I mean, obviously they they were at the same stage that they were in '98, but I, I think if it had gone differently, if they had Makarian and, and you know maybe obviously uh, a few players, because that that team selection also was a, was a strange one as well. It, it really had a a, a bunch of um, players that were mixed about, and it, it really. If if it was done more, if it was prepared better, I mean, you know, what would it what would it what would it have been if they did make that quarterfinal and play? Uh, what was it? I think the United States or, or something. And if they win that, they would play Brazil, a team that they were familiar of. And you know, there were all those type of possibilities. But again, it was just there was so much going on that unfortunately it didn't go the way that they wanted to do uh, in two thousand two. then at this point to 2006 World Cup which was big disappointment really feel very sorry for him feel very sorry for him because uh, now this is where we're getting towards the second generation because if, if you look at the, the qualifying campaign there, there are three phases they start off they start off well and then they just hit a wall and have a bad run and it's you know that old generation of age together so they have to be replaced and that that, that can be traumatic and then they come roaring back at the end they 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 finished very very well under the uh, the veteran uruguayan coach uh, uh, manuel uh, ruiz anibal ruiz and th- there was one player more than any other who exemplified that renewal of the team and that was the the playmaker julio dos santos was uh, a big star in Paraguay with with Cerro Porteño. A little bit Riquelme about him, you know. A little, you know, there, there was class in him. Uh, and at the after qualification, you know, the start of two thousand and six, he goes off to Germany to to Bayern Munich. Uh, and uh, I went down to Paraguay to interview Manuel Ruiz in in March. And uh, and he, he he's saying, you know the special one we've got you know the one that his eyes were just shining talking about talking about julio dos santos saying you know he's special he's different he just gives us so all of his his, his attacking hopes it's not an easy group you know they play england and then sweden first in um in europe and then end up with uh, with, with trinidad and Tobago. um so the draw hasn't been particularly kind for them either with the opponents or or the order of the games and his attacking hopes are built on the flair and the imagination of Julio dos Santos, and then you see the warm-up friendlies. Uh, and for me, this this has always been an object lesson of what what can happen when the player goes to Europe and doesn't get a regular game and loses sharpness and loses confidence and just loses that nip. Because you're looking at the uh, at the um, the warm-up friendlies and you're thinking. Well, Dos Santos is so far off the pace, it's unbelievable. You know, and this is the big attacking hope. 
So that that I, I feel sorry there for for Ruiz. You know, he built all of his hopes on that, and, and and the hopes were crumbling. And he ended up just not being able to pick him for for the first game. He's, you know, just he wasn't playing well enough. And then you know the start. What a start against England! In the first five minutes, you concede an own goal and lose your goalkeeper to a serious injury. Um, and without Dos Santos, they didn't have what it takes to score goals uh, um, against the best. I was disappointed in that World Cup with with Paredes as well. Paredes was a was a was a kind of Frank Lampard style midfielder who um, played for a lot for kind of small clubs in Italy, which was a waste. I, I used to think uh, Manuel Ruiz thought so too. You know, he, he was that midfielder he want getting into the box, uh, and he was a disappointment in that in that World Cup. And perhaps, perhaps not not the perhaps he needed the service, but you know you looked at Paraguay and uh, and you just couldn't see where the goals were going to come from. And against England and Sweden, they lost both games one nil, and that meant that the World Cup was uh, was all over for them. It didn't matter what they did against Trinidad. They, 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 they won that one. Dos Santos got a game. Whoever's got a game and scored and scored again. But it was it was too much, too little, too late. So I think the the, the decline in form of Dos Santos, which is, is symbolic to me of what can happen when a player goes to Europe and that disastrous start against England, it, it meant that they were kind of sunk almost before they'd started. I think what's interesting about that World Cup, um, guys, is that, you know, I, I want to go two years before that because also that kind of expectation is like, all right, you've made it to a third World Cup. Um, you know, not a lot of South American teams have done that in at least in the recent years. But, you know, it also go back two years beforehand where, you know, the U23 side go to to Athens and and, and finish with the silver medal uh, over there, only losing to, to Argentina in the final. And, you know, there were a lot of players that obviously were going to be important in the future, you know, the likes of uh, Ega Barreto and, um, you know, Adriano Torres. But, you know, looking into that 2006 squad, I think it was also unfortunate that uh, that team didn't have the the notion of, of preparing properly. I mean, you know, you said that, you know, De Santos wasn't getting that playing, that uh, those playing minutes over there at, uh, at Bayern. Roque Santa Cruz was also coming back from an injury where he continued to be prone uh, to that. And, you know, you had the likes of Gamara, you know, at 35, um, you know, Paredes as well, perhaps wasn't able to demonstrate that. But, you know, you still had other young players that were coming about, you know, the likes of Nelson Aydovaldez, a player that, you know, was actually never played in professional uh, Paraguayan football and made it all the way to Germany first and was playing at Werder Bremen. You know, he was someone that, you know, not was not familiar by a lot, but definitely showed that kind of um, of. of fortitude to, to be perhaps that player that is able to bring in the goals. And, you know, there were also players that were still important to the team, like Denis Canisa, you know, was playing in his third World Cup. You know, Cuevas was also on that team, who obviously eventually would get the goal against uh, Trinidad and Tobago and become the top goal scorer. And then you got the other players that are also coming up that will also be important. Uh, Paulo da Silva, uh, Julio Cesar Cáceres, Carlos Bonet, uh, obviously the goalkeeper who's to VR, but, you know, unfortunately did it make uh, a big impact because of his injury. So that was a really strange World Cup as well. And also another one was the uh, the loss of uh, Jose Cardoso uh, last minute due to injury. Um, this is a weird World Cup as well because it was technically my first one that I saw, you know, as a fan. I was, what, I was eight years old, so I'm, I'm right there. And I was getting that kind of understanding of what Paraguay was and what they're able to do. You know, my father would be telling me that, you know, this was a team that made it. This would make their three straight World Cups and kind of a kind of an understanding of like, oh, it's now a birthright that we're always going to be in these World Cups. Um, 
obviously that that didn't work out well in pre in future years. But yeah, this was a strange World Cup because I think there were more expectations for this one. But I think coming into a, a really good England side as well that unfortunately was not able to capitalize on their on their golden generation. But yeah, it's also the mix of a of a second generation. You know, the end of the first one of '98 and 2002 with the likes of Gamara. Um, Arce and Chilaver and then comes in the, the Santa Cruz's, Villars and, and Valdez's of the world. And there, it just didn't function properly. And, and perhaps it was just because they, they, they just couldn't find anyone to score. As, as you said, Tim, you know, the goals were coming from no one. They had this attacking prowess. They had, you know, the likes of a Santa Cruz and a Valdez and a Cuevas, but it, it just wasn't able to function properly when it came into those big games uh, in the World Cup. I mean, obviously, that would change, I think, heading into 2007 when a, a familiar name uh, comes in, uh, someone that was obviously uh, familiar with Paraguay football, previously being a coach at Libertad and at um, Cerro Porteño, and that's uh, Tata Martino, and he essentially changed his team a little bit, <laughs> if I have to say. He, he had to fail first, and uh, that Copa America in Venezuela 2007, I was there for that. I was in the stadium in the first game where they beat Colombia 5-0, um, which ended up costing that Colombia coach, who'd only just been appointed, it was Luis Pinto, cost him his job. Um, but that could have happened to Martino because uh, in that game, everything went Paraguay's way. Um, Rocky scored a hat-trick. Cabanas, who was a rising force, came off the bench to score a couple. Uh, and uh, they reached the quarterfinals, and the quarterfinals was the day where everything went wrong. The goalkeeper got sent off early, and they just collapsed. It was 6-0 to Mexico they lost now Martino could have been sacked but wasn't and that was really important because Martino clearly knew Paraguay knew Paraguayan football well from from uh, from um, his exploits at club level but he was looking to change the way that Paraguay played you know, Martino as as we've seen subsequently uh, is, is a possession based coach who wants to play in your half of the field uh, and uh, that 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 hasn't historically been the way that that Paraguay have played. They've been a reactive side almost always. Uh, and uh, Martino realised that he tried he, he, that he, he he tried to go too far too fast, uh, and he realised that he, he just needed at that level he just needed more pragmatism. So what happened then, I think, is it just in in terms of of the unit, it's the best Paraguay side. Of this uh, of this entire saga, the one that goes to 2010, because during qualification you can see clearly that Martino is working on a side that can do either way. When when we need to, we are front foot looking to take the initiative. When we have to, we are happy in traditional Paraguayan style. And the Paraguayans, when you watch a Paraguayan side in uh, uh, that, that, that kind of deep defence that they do. It's both desperate and calm at the same time. They, 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 they thrive on it. Uh, and uh, so Martino, I, I think he had the most rounded side of all the four, four teams that went to the World Cup. And uh, I think that, that's reflected in the performances. And in, in hindsight, you look at the, the score and that they opened up with a 1-1 draw against Italy. And in hindsight, that, may, that might not look too great because Italy had a nightmare. But Italy were the reigning world champions. 
Uh, and uh, in the context, on maybe had Italy won that game, their story in the World Cup would have been would have been entirely different. So in context, that that was a terrific result. It was a wonderful result for 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 Paraguay. Got them confidence um, that they they were confident enough to take the initiative in the in the next game. Uh, a player who, uh, unfortunately, Premier League fans never saw the best of, but I, I thought was a was a terrific, uh, and he's still playing now, but a terrific goal-scoring midfielder, a real, real classy player, Christian Riveros, um, on target against Slovakia. Um, but then you run into Paraguay uh, after after uh, um, those first two games in the, in, the, in the 2010 World Cup. They don't score another goal in the competition. It's it's nil nil with New Zealand, which is which suits them fine. It's nil nil and extra time and penalties against Japan in the second round, and then the big one, the game against uh, against Spain, which to my mind. In in all of the knockout games that that Spanish side played in its three consecutive victories, you know the, the two Euros and the, uh, I, I, I struggle to think of a of a harder knockout game that they played, even including the final against Holland. And Paraguay really, really pushed them. And obviously, the big what if there is the penalty missed uh, or saved by by Oscar Cardozo. Had that gone in, and had Paraguay taken the lead, but as it was, it didn't. Uh, and uh, yet again, so often, just like Germany in 2002, they end up being sunk and by or, or, or France in 1998, they end up being sunk by the late goal. But they really, really gave Spain a, a, a fright. Roberto, I know from your Twitter feed and conversations I've had with you in the past, um, you view the 2010 World Cup as 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 one of the best, uh, as as like your favourite. Um, for me, so I can remember every World Cup since 1990, and I'm sure Tim can remember a lot further back than that. 74, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 74. Um, but for me, no. the 2010 World Cup was perhaps the dullest in in my, in my lifetime. So I I don't have too much love for it, but I know that Paraguayans uh, like yourself feel very differently about it don't they well yeah and also you have to give it a right at, at kind of the age as well i mean there are still people that will enjoy italian 90 and you know there are people that you know from a general consensus will view it as you know a, not a poor tournament but at least one that was just you know very dull i mean in that very kind of true. sense maybe 2010 was that case for this generation but if you look at my age, obviously, I was 12 years old at the time. It was summer. You know, it, it, I had obviously grown into more about the sport. And I, and I saw that entire qualifying campaign you know, where Paraguay beat every team in South America uh, at least once, you know, finishing third, you know, and, and had that great campaign with Tata Martino and the great players that, like, uh, like um, Santa Cruz and, you know, Cavanias, who unfortunately wasn't able to play in that World Cup because of the gunshot that he had back in in January. And, you know, I think that kind of really, it, it definitely sunk. I, I think had he had been on that team, maybe we would have seen a different outcome where there was someone that finally, and I mean finally, would have been able to demonstrate that, that attacking prowess, even in a group that, okay, it was very interesting and kind of, Open. I remember when the draw was first announced, and, and I saw it. I was thinking, okay, yeah, I, I don't know if uh, if we would go far. I would I would assume that maybe they'll finish second or, or something and play the Netherlands, and you know, that that be done and all and be all. But obviously, as we saw, you know, they give Italy a, a a good battle over there in the first game. 
unfortunate for them to, to concede to a, a, a virtue of them that has been so customary for many years, and that was on the set piece, uh, getting uh, conceded from De Rossi on the corner. Then the second game against Slovakia, that was a, that, that, for me, it's a special game as well. You know, it was Father's Day. It was early in the morning here in the States watching that game and briefly had seen the game against Trinidad and Tobago and, and could recall a Paraguay win. But this one was a great game. And I think when you look at how also those players that came about, uh, uh, it, it was interesting because, you know, Lucas Barrios was on that team, uh, you know, someone that nationalized from Argenti- Argentine to Paraguayan. And was doing well at Borussia Dortmund uh, under Jurgen Klopp, and then comes Oscar Cardoso, a player that had performed very well at Benfica, and then was really a, an important player. And then you look at Valdez Santa Cruz, and you're thinking, yeah, there could be that kind of consciousness and, and understanding that, yeah, there will be attacking uh, players. But you know, as we saw in this game, you know, both the goals come from from midfielders in, in Enrique Veda and, and Christian Rivero. So the game against Japan was. Uh, was very uh, different as well. You know, it's nil-nil. It's tight. You know, you would assume that when you compare in history the game against France, the game against Germany, that the game against Japan, who obviously had a good World Cup as well, that, yeah, maybe this is the one that they were able to do that. And obviously the penalty shootout was um, was an example of that. And, yeah, then came again, again this uh, game against Spain. And, you know, going back to what Tim had to say, I think when you look at how... They really give a battle to, obviously, a, a former world champion that was in France, uh, a World Cup finalist that was in Germany in 2002, and then, obviously, the eventual champions in Spain, who, you know, I agree, had probably the most toughest game of all of their campaigns of winning two Euros and a World Cup. You know, that that tight game that, you know, I, I think, you know, even going back and, and looking at it, it was, it was a game where Paraguay could have taken the initiative and, and could have easily won. I, I mean, maybe it would have been very tight. Um, had Cardoso scored, and, and so I, I think when you look at how that World Cup for me was so special, because I think in my general consensus, and to answer what Tim had to say at the beginning, this team that Martino had held that was able to perform on both levels, you know, attack when they needed to, and or traditionally defend as they have always done, because of that well-unit uh, side that was able to be flexible in all extents of the pitch i think that this team would have had the best chance of going very far uh i wouldn't say winning the world cup i think that would have been difficult but you know maybe doing what uruguay did uh that year as well you know playing the netherlands sorry playing a a germany in the semi-final and maybe the 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 tailors would have changed if you know cavanius was on that team either so yeah I, i think when you look at the four world cups where Paraguay had the best chance of, you know, that kind of what if, if they could have done much better. I think the one in South Africa was the one that could have been the one that they uh, could have done much better than they used to. Just to touch a little bit more on uh, Salvador Cabanas, who was the top scorer for Paraguay going into the 2010 World Cup. The first article I ever wrote on South American football was actually about his his shooting, him getting shot in Mexico um, a few months ahead of that World Cup. I, j- I just found it a real tragic story because the 2010 World Cup qualifiers here in South America were the first that I I followed. I was still living back in England at the time, but, but Sky Sports uh, for that for those qualifiers were, were screening some of the games live and, and some on delay. So I'd seen quite a bit of, 
bit of him in the lead up and to seeing in in uh, in South Africa in 2010. And yeah, but that that whole story and his 2010 in general was just really tragic, wasn't it? Not just the shooting, but he he had legal and tax problems as well, which surfaced in Mexico. His former agent sued him. He he was also became a little bit unpopular back in his back in Paraguay after his wife made some comments which uh, which didn't go down too well. Uh, and so within a year, he'd gone from sort of national hero, national star, everybody sort of pinning their their hopes on him being. Um, you know, their talisman in in the 2010 World Cup to suddenly, you know, his life in tatters uh, within a year. In yeah, after being caught up in a bit of a Latino soap opera, really. Yeah, it really was kind of sad as well because he also um, he was expected to actually go to the Premier League. I think you know rumors or at least a report speculate that he was about to sign for Manchester United. Um, or at least agreed on like some sort of pre-contract to join the team uh, after the World Cup. So yeah, it was really a sad story as well. You know, he was also kind of a, a popular figure because he was always he kind of demonstrated that grit, uh, that kind of warrior in in what the Paraguayans are. As Tim said, you know, he was the personification of this. He was someone that was uh, you know a player that obviously was the best. I think on that um, that qualification process, you know, obviously was a big big figure over there at Club America uh, scoring important goals and also you know was South American player of the year and leading goal scorers in Copa Libertadores but for that to have gone down to what happened back in January just a mere six months before the tournament I think was a sad tell in, in what what he would eventually go through but also as a motivating yeah he, he was lucky we should add you know he was very lucky to survive wasn't he yeah 30, 30, 30 days he was i think unconscious um in the end it yeah it pretty much ruined his football career didn't it because the bullet from the shoot was still lodged in his head sorry go on roberto sorry no no i was just saying that it also served as kind of a of a motivating thing for for this paraguayan side you know that they wanted to do this for him but also you know just uh, you know when you have that kind of leader that is or at least you know an important player that is missing from a big squad it, it kind of serves as as motivation for these players to, to do well for not for themselves but for him as well i mean that that was kind of the reason and you know it, it eventually did play off with a with a real great squad that they had in place and you know some teams would have faltered out without having their star player i mean but um, no, I think the tragedy of Cavani is of, you know, again, the kind of what if, if he had been on that side and was able to perform to the extent, you know, would he have been able to help score that penalty against Spain and or, or become, or Paraguay would have been more flashier, you know, he only did score three goals in, in five games, you know, maybe what, what, if, what would he have done on the world stage? And, you know, it's... It goes back to that same thing, you know, the goal struggles, you know, that they continue to have. And, and Cavania's, you know, was that best possibility. And and, uh, and unfortunately, uh, it, it was never the same for him. And just to touch a little bit more on that Spain game, um, which, which uh, saw the end of Paraguay's 2010 World Cup. I have seen that the, the Spanish players also say that that was the toughest game that they faced during during that World Cup. A lot of them were a lot more worried about losing that game than they were the, the final. So, yeah, it, it just does go to show just how good that Paraguay side were. And I think 
if you then look at what they achieved the following year, again, with very resolute defending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were. I was yeah. there for it. I was in the stadium for a lot of the games. And again, Roque gets injured. <laughs> He's looking in, in, crack, in cracking form at the start. And again, he, he gets injured. Um, but it was uh, it was a tournament uh, played. It was obviously midwinter in Argentina. Some of the pitches were deplorable, um, including the one where they beat Brazil on penalties. Um, in, well, they beat everyone on penalties. They didn't actually beat anyone in the course of the competition. And Martino had seen, saw the signs, you know, and he, he, he was well aware that, all right, it look, that looks good on paper that they got to the final of the Copa America. Um, but, you know, frankly, as soon as Uruguay took the lead early in the game, it was all over. I think, and, and Martino had realised he, he'd taken that that group of players as, as far as they could go, which subsequent history really bears out, doesn't it? Beyond, the tragedy of this story is four consecutive World Cups and the fifth one, the one in the neighbouring country, the one all the Paraguayans can come over the border and be part of, that's the one that they didn't qualify for. In fact, if memory serves me right, they finished bottom of, a, of the qualification table. Um, really, I think that helps put in, in perspective how great they were before to make it to four consecutive World Cups, because that means more than one generation. And if you look at the history of, uh, of South American football and of the, the lesser nations, uh, sometimes they've had a generation and they've never been able to replace it. You know, and how long did it take Peru to replace the the Cubillas generation? Or how long did it take Colombia to produce the Valderrama generation? So you miss out on World Cups, but Paraguay didn't. You know, they made it f- to four consecutive ones, renewing the team along the way. And, you know, back to the point of, of, of uh, the start, this is a, a country with a small, small and, and, and uh, even by South American standards, impoverished pol- uh, uh, population. It's, it, it, it's a magnificent achievement. And the fact that they haven't been able to, 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 to carry it on, I think, just shows how good it was and what an achievement it was to reach four consecutive World Cups. I think as well, going into that, um, if, if you go back, I mean, it, even in time, and, you know, I was speaking to, you know, my dad about this, because obviously he had seen that whole process and, you know, he was in his 50s. So, you know, he, he was able to see 86 and then the two World Cups that they missed and then all the way from 98 to 2010. So he was in that kind of generation of, and in a way, I, I think for uh, the newer generation and maybe the ones that were born in like the 80s or the 90s, you know, that were so accustomed to seeing their teams in a World Cup that they thought that, you know, maybe this was going to happen. This was always going to be the case. Um, obviously, that didn't happen because we see other teams that are getting stronger and renewing their generations, the likes of, obviously, Peru and, and Colombia and Chile, um, you know, even Venezuela, who, you know, obviously haven't qualified to World Cup. But, you know, they have some promise that they're showing Ecuador. You know, they, when it comes to Paraguay, and uh, Tim, like you said, you know, this is, <laughs> I will agree, it is a, impoverished country it's socially unequal i mean economically as well and and for that and for the resources that they've been able to achieve and for what they had in a qualifying process that let's be fair is one of the most difficult if not the most difficult in the world for them to do that with the resources that they had to make it to four straight world cups i think proved how great they were at the time perhaps they I'm i'm sure history will at least the ones that our followers of South American football will recognize this team um, as time goes by, you know, a mere 10 years now since the last World Cup. I think history will, will serve them well because of those achievements and, you know, obviously the, the kind of modern age of football 
where you know it was more globalized in a way. I think that way, I think the appreciation that they will show to Paraguay in the future will be will be definitely important. Um, but again, it, it's the case of it, it just how good they had it, and perhaps they didn't recognize it. Perhaps they got a little bit too arrogant. I mean, you know, as people, as even though this maybe isn't a direct correlation, but you know, the head of South American football is based in Paraguay. The last presidents were all Paraguayan, so you would think some sort of influence is there. But um, yeah, I, I think it's just you know kind of the, the the reality, but also kind of the the way of how these new players that are coming in, you know, the, your Miguel Amarones, your Gustavo Gomez's, your Junior Alonso's, and, and many other players as well, um, you know, who grew up watching that side make it to those World Cups, you know, are, are going to be able to find that kind of hopeful experience and and and. And motivation to make it to future World Cups, especially wow with the World Cup expanding. So yeah, I, I think to close it out, I think what this generation was able to achieve in those, in this, in, in, as Tim said, like not just one golden generation, but multiple generations. I think what they were able to achieve was was significant. I think um, not a lot of teams in South America, when you take the exception of the three champions who won the World Cup in Brazil, Uruguay, and Colombia, who have been able to do that. I'm sorry, Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, who have been able to do that. I think it proves that, yeah, it, it, I think that they, it proves that they've been respected. And I think that reputation is here to stay, um, be it a team that was so defensive and, and so hard to beat, whether it was on a continental or, or a world stage. I think uh, history will prove to them that, you know, they will, be, they will continue to be hard, but, you know, it's all about focusing on the problems that have been haunting them. Even if it was in 1998 to, to 2020 from where they're going to get those goals, just and, and to get that kind of identity back, uh, hopefully in the future. What they're going to be remembered for, I think, is the, is the heroic defeats. They're going to be re- remembered for how they made things difficult for France, how they made things difficult for Spain. Um, and uh, can you imagine after the, the, the final of the 1998 World Cup, asking the French players, who would you prefer to face? Would you would you rather have Brazil in the final or would you rather have Paraguay? And uh, astonishingly, the answer would probably be Paraguay, who gave them a much, much harder game than, than, than Brazil did. And the same thing applies not to the same extent, maybe, about 2010 as well with, uh, with, with Spain. I mean, uh, Holland, it was a very, very competitive game. And, and of course, Robin had that, had that great chance to put the Dutch uh, ahead. But Paraguay had a better chance. Oscar Cardoza from the penalty spot. I never like left-footed penalty takers. Take him away. Get a right-footer in there. The stats back me out on this one. If uh, if someone else had taken that penalty, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> it kind of is weird. Like you, you look at how they they and then to this day, I think they're still respected. I was watching the, the, kind of a documentary of of that France side that won the World Cup in 98. And, you know, the, the great Lillian Turan, who was a fantastic defender, you know, was always astonished of how Paraguay was able to, to defend properly. Um, you know, and, and Spain as well with, with the likes of Xavi uh, kind of exclaiming the, 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 the hardness of able to break down them, break down Paraguay. It, it shows that they... I think will always be considered, at least when history goes and they make a history of the the World Cup, that they look into analyzing this 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 Paraguay side. Um, you know, it's a country of six million people, and you know, 
I think when you understand deeply, and you know, obviously, when we saw the likes of Gamara and Chilavert make it to an all-star team in the World Cup, you know, when Chilavert was considered the best goalkeeper in the world, when you had great defenders and you had great forwards, and and, and obviously, you know, they, they aren't recognized on the world stage because maybe they're not the flashiest type from South America, but. You know, I think they have to be respected in a way. And, you know, for me on a personal level to have been, you know, I didn't see 98. I was too young. I didn't see 2002. I mean, I saw 2006. I saw 2010. You know, I was able to kind of live it out in a way at a right age where I was following football. And then obviously speaking to my father, my mother or my family over there. And, you know, it was kind of a un- it was kind of a unity as well, because, you know, this was, you know, that first World Cup that they qualified was nine years after the, the dictatorship that, they had gone through for 35 years under General Alfredo Stroessner. You know, it was kind of that ability to regain that identity and then try to show them to be respected in a way. And, and to just prove that, you know, for football in this sense, you know, kind of show a unity. I mean, what will happen in the future, we don't know. But I, I hope that with this new generation of players and, and the ones and the fans who have grown up, watching those those great world cups who were very nostalgic i would say i mean even during this time people are still nostalgic of speaking about those world cups and, and they will feel proud they, they, they have to i mean they, they really they, to demonstrate a team to have made it to four straight world cups that and and, and putting it on a, a show or at least being able to have been competitive with the exception of 2006 they 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 earn a, a respect on, on South American football, and, and then hopefully time will give them the benefits uh, as years go by. You know what? My outstanding memory now, just thinking back of all of uh, of, of all of the uh, the games from the four World Cups, my outstanding memory is the first game of 1998, which was against Bulgaria. Now I'd, I'd covered, I'd written, I'd done quite a lot for World Soccer Magazine about Paraguay in the build up. Uh, about their defensive solidity and so on. But you're still worried, aren't you? First game in a World Cup, you know, is it all going to be too much for them? None of this generation have seen anything like that before. And remember, Bulgaria were, were considered a, a serious force. They'd had a great World Cup in um, in, in 1994. So um, I roared Paraguay all the way to a heroic nil-nil draw in that game against Bulgaria. And that, for me, is the Paraguayan moment, roaring them onto it to a nil-nil draw.
podcast was produced and edited by Adam Brandon. Guests were Tim Vickery and Roberto Rojas. This has been a World Football Index production. Thank you for listening. Oh